Good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here. Um, I'm going to start the first of three talks on uh, our value of generosity. Um, if you don't know me, my name's John. Uh, I'm married to Sue, and uh, along with our son Dan, we moved to Yeovil uh, in February. And that was because I started working here in last September, part of the staff team here. And um, as part of that, we kind of started coming along online to YCC last June. So we've been here, kind of part of this congregation, sort of, for a year. Um, and one of the things that really, really attracted us um, to think about moving here and being part of what's going on was um, generosity. The generosity we saw in, in the people we encountered on interview and as we talked about moving here. It was a generosity of time and energy and welcome and prayer, a generosity of sharing of life. But it was a generosity, too, that was worked out in the practical programs that this, this church operates, the commitment to its community. It, it's clearly a part of the DNA of, the, of these people here, you. Uh, it's really attractive, and I want to thank you for your generosity shown to us and commend you for it. It's really beautiful to see. And generosity in scripture is, has three elements to it for me. The first of all is that it's commanded. If you do any sort of internet search on generosity in the Bible, you'll find something like 2,000 different verses that talk about money and possessions and how we handle them. Those who have more are expected and commanded to share with those who have less. God's heart is for the poor and the financially vulnerable. The widows and orphans is often how it's expressed, but those who are financially insecure and vulnerable. The early church in Acts 2, who were often given as a great example of generosity and sharing, they are simply living out what scripture has already said. They're, they're carrying out a practice of making sure that everybody has enough. God himself is generous. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Secondly, scripture um, commends generosity to us. Psalm 41 says, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they're in trouble. The Lord protects them. He gives them prosperity. He restores them to health. God blesses those who are generous. And, and studies have shown that um, generous people, generous-hearted people, are generally happier and healthier and more satisfied with life. The act of being generous actually helps people be more generous because, because you feel better for doing it. Once people learn satisfaction through generosity, they are less inclined to search for it elsewhere. And the third thing I notice about generosity in the Bible is it's completely bonkers. The whole concept of jubilee, of resetting ownership and debt, does not make sense. The, the uh, requirement for people to be generous seems to go above and beyond anything rational. Um, the widow of Zarephath is, is asked to give her last food to ensure that Elijah eats first. The widow's offering, the widow is commended by Jesus in Mark 10, gives all she had to live on. The rich and ruler is called to go and sell everything and give to the poor. 
to become this amazing philanthropist. Let's be clear. Jesus had quite a lot to say about money. Something like 15% of his teaching is focused on handling money and possessions. It's more than on faith and prayer combined. Much of it, if we're honest, is really quite uncomfortable to hear. And how we handle money reflects what we really believe. We heard that from Joe a few weeks back, don't we? Our actions um, demonstrate what's truly going on in our heart. Basically, God's economy does not work the way we want it to or expect it to. It's upside down. And it seems to be very much upside down when we're thinking about money. I want to look at the story of the rich young ruler for a couple of reasons, which will become apparent. I'm going to read um, the version from Mark 10. But there are actually three versions of the story. One's in Matthew 19 and another one's in Luke 18. They're, they're basically the same story. I'm going to read you the Mark 10 version. So Mark 10, 17 to 22. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honour your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now, we know from this story that he's rich, he has many possessions. We know from the Matthew account that he's young, he's described as a young man. We know from the Luke account that he's a ruler. This is most likely a young, wealthy ruler who is part of the synagogue in the place that they're passing through. He has money and wealth, he has power, he has status. He has everything the world recognises as success but he's clearly not content because otherwise he wouldn't ask the question there's, there's something that is still niggling at him he, he hasn't got what he really wants what must I do to inherit eternal life and I, I love the fact that Jesus gets right to the point he's, he, goes, he goes straight to ask about the commandments but it's really interesting he misses the first three out he misses the first commandments about the ones about God and worship. It's like he knows that this man has got his theology right. He, he, he understands God. He's religious. He's practicing. Instead, what he asks him about is how he has acted on that theology. How is he treating other people? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely. 
Do not cheat anyone. Honour your father and mother. These are all about our relationship. Is he living out his theology? Yes, says the young man. I have done all of that. The by implication, but I still have no contentment. It is not satisfying. The second thing I love is that Jesus has compassion for him. This is not um, a, a, an opportunity for Jesus to condemn his wealth or his power or his status. He doesn't do that at all. He wants to set this young man free so that he can find contentment. It's not that money is wrong. It's what it does to him, what it's done to him that has made him unhappy and unhealthy. So Jesus checks, has checked out his theology. He's checked out his actions. But actually... He's also already checked out his heart. You see, Jesus did not include all of the commandments. He misses out the first three. He also misses out the last one. Do not covet. And what I notice is that the young man has not picked up on this. He said, yes, I've done all of these things. I've ticked them all off. Conveniently ignoring the fact that one's been missed out. I think actually he, he knows. He just can't bring himself to face it. That's the problem with Jesus, isn't it? If we want to make progress with him, he always makes, up, makes us face up to the truth about ourselves. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Do not covet. Bam. Your problem is that you covet things. Bam. I want to set you free. So let go of the things that trap you. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the amazing thing about Jesus, isn't it? He makes us face up to the truth about ourselves because he loves us and wants to set us free. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had many possessions. It says sad. That's a bit of a weak translation. It really means grieved. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus' heart in the Garden of Gethsemane. The man goes away grieved. Clearly, his money and wealth and power and possessions have a tremendous hold over him. It's not that they're wrong. It's what it does not do for us that the problems that occur. It's money and power and wealth and status do not give us contentment. What it can do is trap us, and that's when it becomes really unhealthy. So if we are to be truly generous, because that's what we're thinking about, and cheerfully generous, freely giving. We're told God loves a cheerful giver, not one who, in fact, we're asked not to give reluctantly and, uh, and under any sort of duress. We need to give cheerfully. That's about a heart issue. And a heart issue comes out of us being free of the illusions about money and free from its power. We need to find contentment. The human condition, isn't it? Research in the US recently has discovered that contentment rises with income but then reaches a plateau. 
above a certain income level. And that's not surprising. Poverty is horrible. If you do not have enough money for shelter, a safe place to live, uh, for food, to be able to feed yourself and your family, for clothes, to keep you warm, life is rough and tough and horrible. And if that's where you are at the moment, please come and ask us for help. If you're trapped in that at the moment, we want to help you. There are lots of ways we can do that for you. Please get in touch. The thing is, the level at which this research found that contentment levels off is around, it's in American dollars, $75,000. The average household income, around about $75,000, which is just below the median for, the, for a US middle class life. In other words, once you've sorted out shelter and foods and clothes, more money um, generally doesn't bring more contentment. The second thing that um, surveys have found is that if you ask people how much money would be enough, people generally say about 25% more than they've got at the moment. Thank you very much. Regardless of income level. And again, that's, that's not surprising, because a 25% increase would give us margin. If we can't afford to pay our bills, 25% more is likely to help us pay our bills and therefore ease the worry of not being able to do so. If we can pay our bills, then 25% represents disposable income, stuff we can spend on ourselves. But the answer is consistently 25%, regardless of our income. In other words we very, very soon find ways of spending that extra money and find ourselves back at square one. And remember, above a modest income threshold, we do not get any happier. So it escalates. 25% of 20K is £5,000. 25% of 40K is £10,000. 25% of 80K is £20,000. Now, that to me is bonkers. The fact that we want more, but more never gives us the satisfaction, and that leads us to wanting even more. The final thing that surveys have found out is that people with lots of money actually feel less secure. 30% of people who earn more than a quarter of a million dollars do not think they are high earners. 40% of people who have more than a million dollars do not think they are rich. 50% of people with wealth of more than $25 million did not feel financially secure. It's bonkers. We always want more. And when we get it, all it brings us is more worry. Do not covet, says God. And when he says do not covet, it's not being a spoil sport. He's not saying wealth or nice things are wrong. He's saying, don't get trapped by them. That's not where you will find fulfillment and contentment. I want to save you from yourselves. Do not covet. You find it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we're asked not to covet our neighbor's wife. In other words, family and relationship their house or land, the things that make it look like they're secure and that they've got their investments sorted out, their male or female servants, the things that 
give people status and position. Their ox or donkey, the things that allow them um, to be upwardly mobile, that give them a living, an income. And all the other stuff that they belong, their possessions, the things that demonstrate lifestyle and comfort. Do not covet your neighbor's things and position and status. Because coveting and comparison always looks upwards. The people above you, the people who are beyond you. And we can never be content with what we do have if all we ever do is look at what others have. Why do we do it? Well, it's, it's sinful, isn't it? It's part of our condition. There's something that leads us in our nature to compare, to want more, to not trust God um, that he has this, that he has us, that we are his. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, Jesus said in Luke 12. So don't worry about these things. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. The truth is, things, money, will not give us contentment. Only God can give us that. Why else do we covet? Well, the world wants us to. Our entire economy is built on consumption. Our whole lives are surrounded by people wanting to sell us things. We buy things because we need them or we want them. And advertisers can't change what we need, so all they can do is play on what we want. So they sell us fantasy. This product will make you feel better. This product will help you achieve this lifestyle. People will love you or look up to you or follow you if you have this. The system we live in is actively trying to manipulate our fallen nature. It's selling us a lie. The truth is it will not give us contentment. It comes from our identity in God. Third reason we covet, sin, the world, the devil. If our identity is security is based in wealth, the loss of those things is something that we fear. So the accumulation and retention of wealth becomes our focus. And anything that attracts our attention away from God for our security and our identity is an idol. Anyone who attracts our worship, the things that we put our worth in, away from God, does not have our best intentions at heart. It has evil behind it in some way. It's interesting that the only God that Jesus talks about by name is money. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not a command. It's a statement of truth. You can either serve God or you can serve money. You cannot do both. And if you are serving one, then you are not serving the other. This is personal for me. Um, I had a good job. A nice house. Um, uh, we were secure. And God placed a call in our lives to give it all up and to go and work as volunteers in a Christian community. This happened about five years ago. And we went on an interview. And just before we went on to the interview, I, I was talking with a friend, one of my closest friends, and I was praying with him. And I, I said, I was going back to Cambridge to see some, um, uh, to a college dinner. I got invited back for a free dinner. And I, I said, I really covered 
the lifestyles of people I see there, people who've done better than me with the same education, um, who are wealthy and successful and, and secure. I named it, I actually named it as covetousness. And during the interview process, when we were at Lee Abbey, one of my morning readings was the story of the rich young man. And the, the Bible notes that went with it pointed out that do not covet was missed out, which is the first time I'd ever seen that. That was the thing that hit my heart. John, you're coveting this stuff and you need to let go of it and not worry about it because I have your best intentions at heart. That was one of the key parts of my personal call to go and the confirmation that that's what I needed to do. And while we were at the Abbey, we were living as volunteers. We had a small allowance. We had food and accommodation provided. And we were blessed by the generosity of some of our friends and our church to help us, support us. But generally, um, living there taught us to live more simply and more thankfully. We found when we did that, life was just as full and rewarding as it had been before. More so in many ways. We also found that we were living more in the moment. We found that we encountered God in the everyday and in the present, where we were. And we found that we learned to live more trustingly, that God was faithful to his promises to us and that we had everything that we needed. Living more simply and thankfully. Fantastic. The same prayer that was prayed over um, Freddie. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Living thankfully, I have found, lifts my eyes, not from looking upwards and comparing, but looking around and looking below. It helps me gain perspective of my true situation. It helps me not covet. And in doing so, I found a deeper sense of God's presence and peace. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Being thankful and trusting God helps us understand God's presence and peace with us. And secondly, we, we started to live more simply. We cut out either by choice or by necessity or because it was enforced upon us, lots of unnecessary things in our lives. We didn't have much, but neither did the people that we were with. We had all we needed. We did without many things and we found that we didn't miss some of those things. We missed some of them, but we didn't miss many of them. And we also, in Living Simply, ended up focusing on doing the things that we really enjoyed doing. We did a lot more with people. We, we ate together, we conversed together, we worked together, we went out into the beautiful estate, the nature, um, and, and enjoyed that together. We shared skills, we made gifts for each other. There was something about those things that was life-giving, and we did more of it. And we were attracted to doing those things um, because they were life-giving. It helped me work out what I was distracted by and what brought me life and joy. These are the things that bring contentment. I learned, too, to live more in the moment. God is present in the moment, here and now. You can encounter him here and now. You don't need to look forward to that great conference or time away or look back on a previous experience of God. 
you can encounter him here and now. So what is it in this current situation that he's trying to teach you or bless you with? Because he's put you here and now for a reason. The person in front of you, what can they bring to you and give to you? What can you receive from God through that person? Or the situation that you're facing? What is God wanting you to bring and share in the situation you find yourselves in? How can you serve the person in front of you? How can you bless them? How can you bring your gifts and skills and be generous into this situation? Living in the moment is where we find contentment. And finally, I learned how to trust, we learned how to trust God more. He made us much more confident in our praying. God, you called us to be here, and all of this financial stuff is stopping us, so please will you sort it out? Give us what we need. Lord, we need to be here. You've called us to be here. All of this stuff going on with our family is stopping that. Please will you sort it out? We started to trust God more. And that is actually where we found contentment because he was faithful. He he gave us all we needed. And please notice in all of the things that I've said here, I I use the word more. More simply. More in the moment. More trusting. This is a process. And we by no means have got this sorted out. We are learning about this. And it was just the same for hearers of our faith. Paul, St. Paul, had to learn how to be content. The passage that we heard uh, in Philippians 4. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So it's learned behaviour that God strengthens us to do. We try, we learn, we fail, we get up, we try again. This is faith and discipleship worked out on a daily basis. If this stuff is hard to hear because you do not have anything or you're struggling with debt or not having enough money, please ask for help. There are lots of people who would love to help you. And there are lots of programs and things in place that can help you sort out and manage debt and financial difficulty. Um, Christians Against Poverty is is the obvious place that can help you. If you are interested in getting less attached to money, wealth, and status, I recommend the book Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. There's a chapter on living simply in there which just has loads of practical advice on what you can do to stop hearing the advertising to not comparing, to using what you have, learning to live in the moment. Good stuff. And I want to leave you just with some questions. As you've listened to me, if you've thought about this, just have an honest reflection. Where is your sense of worth and identity really based? Ask God. Ask Father God to show you how he sees you. What is stealing your attention? What are you worried about losing? Bring your focus back to Jesus. Make him the object of your worship. And if you're interested in how you could choose to live more simply and thankfully, then that's a conversation you need to have with the Holy Spirit. Because he's going to inspire you and equip you 
to start doing this. You're not going to solve it in one day. It's a process. It's discipleship. The learning to live contentedly is a key part of sorting our heart out so that we can then live more generously.